Guys, I have two huge pieces of news for you. The first of which I have been so excited that I've been teasing this for a couple of weeks, even though I wasn't even 100% sure it was all going to happen. But I have partnered with the Great Courses Plus company. Great Courses, I've been talking about online classes on this podcast since the podcast started. I encourage everyone to take courses online and utilize the information out there in our modern world. It's incredible that we have all of this available to us on our computers and with the Great Courses Plus on an app on your phone. You can play it on audio or video. I'm taking courses in my car. I'm watching them in front of the computer. And there's so many options of different categories. But you're going to get choice paralysis if you look at all of the different categories. So I'm just going to tell you about the best class I've ever taken in my entire life. It is called Biology and Human Behavior, the Neurological Origins of Individuality by my hero, Robert Sapolsky. You know I talk about Robert Sapolsky all the time on this podcast. I've had him on the podcast. No, uh, I, I don't mean any disrespect to any of my other guests, but he is my favorite guest that I've ever had. He is my hero. He is the Michael Jordan of science, if you ask me, and such an incredible teacher, such an incredible communicator. Any one of you out there is going to find this class accessible. It's going to change the way you see the world. There is no better thing that anyone could do for themselves, in my opinion. I think the world would be a better place if every single person in the world took this class. I, I took this class like seven years ago or something like that, and it absolutely changed my life. It's a big part of the foundation of my knowledge that I use to understand so many things with this podcast. You'll understand this podcast better if you take this course, and there's so many other courses available I've been taking. Uh, I'll be talking about the many courses I'm taking in the coming weeks, but zoology being one in preparation for today episode and you can skip around to different lectures. I took some mammal uh, lectures. I didn't have time to take the whole class, so did that for preparation for the podcast you're hearing today. Took some insect lectures um, for some upcoming podcasts that I've already recorded. And because of these partnerships, which by the way, if you go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash here we are link, you get a free month for being partnered with the podcast as a win-win for everybody. I win by you signing up. The Great Courses wins by you signing up. But most of all, and I know that you'll agree, you win by signing up for this and educating yourself. I want to live in a world where more people, I wish every single person took this, but every single person that does take this course, it will have these little ripple effects all around the world and create a better world to live in. And I honestly believe this. And this is honestly such an important partnership for me. And it's so important that I've been creating these really compatible partnerships, these win-win partnerships, where I don't have to sacrifice like my integrity by plugging something that I don't really believe in or I have to make some compromise about 
about how I do the podcast or whatever, the great courses people have allowed me to, rather than interrupting the show and, and recording them mid-roll, they're letting me experiment, they're putting their, their faith in me for now that, that I can just talk about this openly and honestly in the beginning of these episodes so we're not interrupting the show and and they're giving you guys a month free. That's the great courses plus.com slash here we are. And here is the other piece of good news that this allows. These partnerships are allowing me to transit to make the transition I've been trying to do from being uh, primarily a stand up comedian and secondary a science communicator to switching that and being primarily a science communicator. This is the direction that I have been wanting to go for the last several years. I never thought I'd like anything as much as stand-up comedy, but I like doing this podcast even more and the things that are that I'm piecing together like stand-up science that have been coming along with it are just so meaningful to my life and I'm creating this the audience of people that I want to spend my time around and because of that I am going to start releasing a fifth here we are podcast a bonus here we are podcast every month starting next week there will be two episodes um, coming out for the June bonus so I'm really excited to be doing this I have been working really hard this year on banking a bunch of episodes. I have months of episodes now in the bank, so if I get busy and can't record any for a while or get sick or have uh, whatever issues that might come up, I'll have that in the bank so I can now commit to releasing five a month. That's a more Here We Are podcast to you guys because I love this podcast. I love recording these interviews, and I am... So appreciative for your guys' support in my uh, various supporting stand-up science, helping me spread the news, and now being a part of these partnerships for me. And now I need your help. The Great Courses Plus has taken a chance on me, hoping that they're going to get more customers for their wonderful product. And I have promised them that this is such a perfect fit for my listeners. So please go and check it out. The first month is free, so there's no harm in giving it a shot. Um, I think that you'll you'll find it really, really positively impacts your life. And it's such a perfect complementary component to this podcast because this podcast, each episode is a little bit of a mixed bag. Each week is a little bit of a mixed bag. And taking some courses like Biology and Human Behavior by Robert Sapolsky will give you some nice framework and, and a foundation through which to see and understand all of these episodes better. So this is just a really incredible opportunity for me. You can always go to the herewearepodcast.com website to learn more and get the links to the partnerships, but I'm just so excited to share all of this with you guys, and I'll be talking more about it in the coming weeks, but make sure and sign up today because the free month is a limited time offer. If you're listening to this podcast sometime in the future, I don't even know what the deal is anymore, but uh 
I want you guys to jump on this as soon as possible. That is thegreatcoursesplus.com slash here we are. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. I'm excited. Today, I'm at the Cincinnati Zoo. I know you listeners will be excited about this. Once in a while, we get to do a zoo or aquarium episode, and everyone always writes in how much they liked it. Trying to do more of them, and today is one of those days. I have the curator of mammals, Christina Gorich. Gors- Gorsuch. There you go. Gorsuch. Well done. I'm going to leave that well in. Well done. You should. Yeah. You should. That's pretty, that's pretty awesome. That's great. I like it. And I have like a very like radio sounding voice up until that point. And then I screw up the name and then it falls apart. And then for whatever reason, I feel like more comfortable afterwards. And then I also have animal excellence manager, David Orban, joining me today, who's now both of these guys get to laugh at how red my face is right now <laughs> because this is this is the normal routine i tell them ahead of time listen i'm gonna screw up your name and then i proceed to it's a fun thing for everybody describe the color of my face right now um i'm gonna call it not quite beat maybe blush <laughs> maybe go. a nice like rosé a nice yeah, rosé that's what we're gonna say <laughs> all right i like that all right david we might not have you for the entire podcast so that's i want to i want to start with you you're you're busy, man. You got things to do, Christina. Oh, whatever. I got Christina's just to as do. busy. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. um, so let's start with you. Uh, uh, tell me about a little bit about your background, how you came to be here at the Cincinnati Zoo, and what you do here. Sure. So I um, I went to school at Michigan State University. Go Green, go Spartans! <laughs> for anyone that went there, um, I uh, was a graduate of our zoology program, and really when I was an undergrad, I started uh, kind of catching word of a kind of a burgeoning science in the zoo and aquarium field, um, animal welfare science. It's um, been around in the farm and laboratory industries for a while, but um, zoos really started to integrate a lot more science um, into how they cared for animals, how they understood animals. Um, I mean, it's been going on for a few years, but there's, you know, a few more conferences, a few more workshops. So I started getting involved in that. Um, and then I continued on with a master's uh, degree also at Michigan State University, where I did focus on uh, zoo animal behavior and welfare. I focused on giraffes um, and their behavior around guest feeding programs around at zoos. Um, after I graduated, I, I moved down to Florida. I spent some time at Zoo Miami, and then I worked at uh, Disney's Animal Kingdom for three years on their science team. Um, and uh, then I moved to Cincinnati Zoo and Botanical Garden two years ago. Where we stole him successfully. Yes, yes. <laughs> it's been great. Um, uh, so my title here is Animal Excellence Manager. Uh, much of my role focuses on making sure that we understand as much about our animals so that we can give them the best lives possible when, we're, when they're here. Um, so I do a lot of behavior research. We do a lot of welfare monitoring and assessments. I help out occasionally with exhibit design or um, with... Uh, different strategies and projects. So um, I kind of get the best of both worlds. I get to work on science and uh, project management, and I focus on all the species around the zoo. So it keeps me busy, um, but I'm always learning and uh, meeting new people and um, meeting new animals. And it's it's really great. I think we've been able to make a lot of 
really positive um, and great changes here for our animals. That's fantastic. Christina, tell the people about yourself. I feel like I'm not going to have as good of a story, as smooth of a story as David. Oh, that was tough to tell. Um, I mean, he's pretty smooth. It's hard. It's hard. Um, I uh, went to school in New Orleans. I went to Tulane University, um, which is where I got a degree in primatology. And I first zoo I worked at was there in New Orleans at Audubon Zoo. Uh, with primates for about six months and then I switched away from them and never returned so my degree was super useful <laughs> and um, you understand humans now though really well sure I do yeah <laughs> um, and so I worked at Audubon for a couple years and then moved to Zoo Atlanta which is where I spent most of my time about eight or nine years at Zoo Atlanta through a whole bunch of different changes there which was very helpful for me career wise to learn different supervisory and managerial skills collection planning animal management the whole spectrum because that zoo went through several lifetimes in a period of 8 years um and then i moved to chicago's brookfield zoo um just for a change of pace to see if i could handle negative 40 degrees I can't. That's yeah. the answer to that. Um, I grew up in Southern California, so I always pretend that I've been a Southerner my whole life. And then I moved to Chicago and got a rude awakening. Um, but that was a great institution to learn a lot of new things at, as well as kind of bigger zoo association type stuff. And so managing whole populations and whole collections of animals. So um, African painted dogs are my like crazy obsessive psycho person species that I love more than life itself. And, um, I manage that population, the whole North American population. I was, this is terrific because I went, uh, I've been walking around the zoo a bit today uh -huh. and I was going to, there's like a schedule with chats and things. And I went to the African painted dog chat and i didn't see anyone around oh, no. so i never got the chat now i get a oh my gosh now, now i get a private how shameful those are my keepers too i'm it, gonna have to go was, next door and yell at in them in their defense it was raining <laughs> most was. of the day so there were some storms that came through um, so fine. just I mean, to defend them a little bit in the wrong area or whatever but now i doubt I get... it <laughs> we actually just did i just narc on you the totally crew? did oh, i'm gonna man, blame it I'm... on you um that's fine they need a good narking every once in a while i also found out that the okapi weren't out today so Oh. Things I find out when oh. friends are in the zoo. Um, yeah, so painted dogs are awesome. And Chicago is a great place to learn all sorts of things. And then I moved here to Cincinnati Zoo three um, three years ago, three and a half years ago. Yeah. 2015, fall of 2015. So I have, this is, this is one of those questions. It's silly. I'm going to ask. It might be the hardest question that I ask because uh -oh. it's going to be like, you should know the answer and maybe you don't. How old is the Cincinnati Zoo? Uh, we opened in 1875. 19, 1875. 1875. 1875. 1875. Yeah. So we, double see, that's we're going to be approaching good. our 150-year uh, anniversary in 2025. Mm -hmm. So for our 150th anniversary. That's we are awesome. the second oldest zoo to yep. Philadelphia, right? Yeah, Philadelphia opened, I think, what, a few... Like a year before us. Yeah. But we always joke that it doesn't quite count because our buildings are the oldest, but they had like a swan in a pond and called that a zoo. So there's a small okay. little rivalry And, and who knows, yeah, who knows the <laughs> sure. whole story who knows, way back when that's of what, what we that like was, but we are one of the oldest zoos in the nation. Yeah. And so we have a lot of really great history here. Ah, um, yeah. 
And what's the best zoo in the nation? <laughs> I'm going to say Cincinnati Zoo. Isn't here. Actually, though, I'm going to say Cincinnati Zoo and actually mean it, which I can say maybe yeah. I would not have always met, meant at other places. Well, I've isn't I, I've, I've never been, but isn't uh, isn't the Columbus Zoo nearby supposed to? Is there like a rivalry There's going a rivalry. on there? Because that's supposed to be a real good one, right? Correct. Yeah, Jack Hanna Zoo. Yeah, um, yeah exactly. Yeah, it's just two hours away. David's like looking like, I don't want well, to talk about Well, it's funny because the person that was here today that told me that the Okapi weren't out is my counterpart at the Columbus Zoo. And so he's giving me a hard time. But all I ever say is like, well, we have Fiona and you don't. So I'm going to say oh, we're, we, we're better. Fiona is um, a, a prematurely born hippo. Correct. The smallest ever. Yeah, she's a Nile hippo, a river hippo that was born here. Two and a half years ago in January of 2017, and she's the first and only ever on record premature Nile hippo born more than five days early to survive. She was born six to eight weeks early. Is she just a regular old normal uh, she is. hippo in There's every way? There's nothing interesting to say about her anymore. <laughs> okay, she's still really cute. <laughs> she's so, very cute. Um, I saw her. Can, she is really she knows that. the cameras. She knows people. Uh, she true. definitely pays attention. She's a little bit of a diva. She's a huge uh, diva. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> No, that is actually my most favorite thing to say about her is that she's totally normal and you would never know that there was anything miraculous about her beginnings. That's wonderful. So what was uh, what was that like? I I mean, I I imagine you've talked about this endlessly. You're shaking your everyone wants to know about Fiona. You brought her up, by the way. I know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's like default. Like I can't. I almost can't not bring it up because you're kind of you're known. You've you've had to do like a lot of media and everything. Yes. Well, Christina was the first one to go in and and handle her yeah 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 very, not very up. smoothly it was not pretty much smooth. dropper is what the video looks she was like. a little slippery <laughs> wow um, so what what <clears throat> happens when a hippo goes into labor so when a hippo goes into labor there's certain signs that we look for that we uh the keepers were all prepared for we do a lot of research and preparation have procedures and protocols around um so when bb went into labor uh, our primary hippo keeper at the time, Dan, knew that she was in labor, but also knew that it was at least six weeks early and was kind of like, I don't know what's going on here. So they just swim a lot. They barrel roll. They kind of look like those hippo ballerinas that are in the cartoons. Like mm-hmm. that's essentially what a female does when she's in labor. BB did that for 12 hours continuously. Um, and then for whatever reason, came up out of the water, which hippos give birth in water. But she came up onto land, out of the water, and gave birth to Fiona on land, which is the only reason why she's still here, because she would have drowned immediately. She didn't have enough muscle control to like even pick up her own head, mm. let alone um, swim to the surface. Um, so yeah, but yes, I was the Dan and I were the, we arrived within a minute of each other and got a hold of Fiona and figured out that she wasn't going to be able to stand up or take care of herself. BB had tried to take care of her. She went over, she was nuzzling her, doing all the good mom stuff we'd want her to do. But Fiona just, she was so undercooked, like so undercooked. Well, but how did, how does BB like re- respond to your human interaction during that time? Yeah. So all the animals in the zoo for the most part are trained. Um, they're, you know, they're all conditioned to, do they what the have, keepers ask. They, they all have relationships. Also, they also have relationships. I mean, I these keepers for. have been working with these animals uh, for years, sometimes decades. So they have really great relationships 
with them. So they're used to them being around. They're used to them interacting with them to a certain degree. Obviously, it depends on the species a bit. But, you know, BB, you worked with BB for how long? BB loves Dan. BB loves all of her keepers. She voluntarily opens her mouth and lets them like file her tusks. Like she mm-hmm. is like, you know, a giant dog in the sense of what do you want me to do? Give me some food and I'll do it. Um, so even after having just given birth and been in labor for all those hours, actually, it was funny. She was probably hungrier than she ever been before in her life because all she does is eat and she hadn't eaten anything for 12 <laughs> hours. So Dan just shook a bucket of food and she moved over to a different stall. We shut the door and then we were able to go in safely uh, with mm. Fiona and assess that whole situation, which our assessment was she's undercooked and we don't know if she's going to live, but we'll do our best. And, and it worked out it. and she made it. That's amazing. Yeah. It, it, you compared uh, uh, BB's uh, ability to learn these routines like a, a, to a dog, but dogs have certainly evolved alongside humans and I would think are a little more trainable, but you guys, is, is that not the case? Hippos, you think you have hippos trained just as well as, what's like the, what's the hardest and what's the easiest animal to train in a zoo? So I'll say as far as like evolving side by side and all that, all living, breathing creatures, I'm not going to be able to do this justice but dr susan friedman is an expert on animal behavior and why animals will train and do anything we want them to do as long Mm -hmm. as we're giving them strong reinforcements that are of value to them Mm -hmm. um so at the zoo pretty much any animal here can be as easily and as well trained as your dog at home really better trained than my dogs at home i have the worst dogs ever david that's true i can attest to that yeah (laughs) um they don't my muddy pants and everything yeah yep (laughs) um I pretend that no zookeepers have good pets because we do it all day long at the zoo. But um, but I think easiest and hardest is kind of one of those things of like who's the most and least motivated, right? So if you have animals that are really slow, like a sloth, for example, or even like a red panda that's like, I guess I'll eat that grape you're offering me. But they're not super into it because they're just slow-mo their yeah. metabolisms are slower they're just not as motivated oh, they might be more excited and motivated by their keepers right because they're like oh i like you you're fun um but then something like i i have like a real sloth red panda attitude in, see, in life so we might have like, to coax you along yeah yeah find the and be very excited <laughs> communicate like efficiently to find you. the target with your nose um there's just different kinds right so then we have giraffe who are um to all my giraffe people out there, yes, they're smart, but in their own giraffe way that none of the rest of us understand. Right. And they're huge, but they're scared of everything. And so to get a giraffe to like walk through a doorway it's never walked through before is like the most amazing thing you could accomplish in your entire career. And at the same time, you have an elephant who will stand still for a full body exam, blood dry out of their ears, take medication, jump through a hoop of fire, do anything you want them to do. Mm. But you could almost argue in some worlds that's easier to train than training that giraffe to walk through the door because innately that giraffe is terrified of that door. And innately the elephants just want to learn they're problem solvers. Hmm. So they're just trying to figure out how to solve whatever problem you've given to them. Hmm. Yeah, I would say that. I mean, it depends on the species and their natural history, their cognitive abilities, their senses. You know, they're just every species is going to be different. But I think our keepers are even doing a lot of great work with training, you know, alligators right now and, and our American crocodile and, you know, different birds. And so there's a lot of work going into that. And, you know, while we can train for everything, most of the training that we're doing is for what husbandry and mm-hmm. veterinary purposes. I mean, the ability for us to be able to file down BB's teeth and take good you know, care of, of those huge tusks, right? Like 
that saves us a lot of work on the, the veterinary end, um, making sure that she stays happy and healthy. Hmm. And anything so we can do for us. that would allow the animals to voluntarily participate in their own care is where we want to go, right? Like back in the day, I don't know, like five big dudes would jump on the back of a zebra and hold it real tight <laughs> yeah. and they'd give it its vaccinations right. or whatever. And now, you know, I have a bucket of sweet feed that they really like and they come over and the vet just reaches in and ah. gives them their injection just like you give a kid a lollipop kind of a thing. See, that that's very interesting because I would have... Uh, I mean, we talk a lot about the difference between, you know, it, it, genetic and environmental influences. And I would have guessed that that the larger mammals that evolved around Africa would would have evolved a tendency to be skittish around humans. And that's how they survived. Yeah. And, and you bring up a zebra, obviously a bit harder to train than a horse because yeah. of their evolutionary histories. So, yeah. Um, they're a bit more volatile as well, but <laughs> yeah. they're just a little bit more unpredictable. But yeah, it's it's interesting because also for the most part, especially when we're talking about large mammals in zoos, the z- animals you see in zoos have lived in zoos for many generations, right? Uh. So the zebra I have here, I don't know, is probably fourth or fifth generation zoo-born hmm. animal. I'm trying to do the math of how long zebras live to see if that's an accurate statement. It might be more just like... go with it. Whatever. We'll go pretend. <laughs> um, so... In some sense, a lot of the animals that are in zoos have already started to adapt in a way to being up close to humans. Hippos, I can't believe I keep referring to hippos, but hippos are a really (laughs) good example because they're the most dangerous land mammal in Africa. They were responsible for the highest number of deaths because they're very territorial and very aggressive if you enter their territory, which is water. And so I live in Africa. I need to get some water. But guess what? That's where the hippos live. Mm -hmm. Um, But here in zoos, they don't need to defend their territory. They get all the food they want. And they have all the water they want. So they're like, oh, yeah, what do you want me to do? Okay. So they're not aggressive at all in zoos towards us because they have no reason to be. Yeah. So it's interesting. But again, it comes back to those. It comes back to those relationships. Mm -hmm. Come back to the individual animals, the individual keepers. And I mean, we work hard at that. Yeah. Hmm. So you talk about having things raised multiple uh, multiple generations in in a zoo. This probably isn't. I imagine this is not the case, but do you know? Do you know of the study? Like, uh, I think it was in the 1900s, sometime where they they bred the foxes, the foxes for um, domestication. Dom- uh, yeah, domesticate. It was, it was like I think they were just kind of like what was the the friendliest or whatever toward humans. They would they would pull a couple of those out and have them mate, and then they kind of evolved physiological changes as well yeah has that ever happened in zoos before is that is that something is that like a concern at all that that you're changing the dna of of um animals compared to like the natural world i don't i don't think so i'm gonna let david answer more in detail about maybe why but for me my understanding of that fox study which i don't I'm actually that trying was like to remember. Generations it was in like Russia, that. and yeah. I was trying to remember if they actually picked out the cute characteristics, and that ended up making them tamer, or vice versa. No, yeah, it was they picked tame, and okay. then they the got cute char- cuter, the, like big ears and the short <laughs> yeah, noses yeah. and all that stuff. Really, but yeah. they chose foxes because those foxes had very short lifespans, yep. so they could very short generations. That like very you, you just said, four generations. Right. That's not near long enough no. for anything like that to happen. I do think um, what we look out for in zoos is to make sure we try to keep up as much uh, genetic variation and viability as possible. So we are pulling 
back in the day, right, the majority of the painted dogs came from South Africa. That's where they collected them from and brought them in from. So we're tr- so will our dogs in zoos look more like South African painted dogs than the ones in Botswana? Mm. Yeah, probably. But as far as them actually like having different physiological features, I don't it doesn't seem like we run into that. It seems like we've had enough influx of new genetic lines from either Europe or wherever, mm-hmm. sometimes from the wild in the past. Um, I'd say I think the we run into risk of that with like those, you know, uh, those that have shorter lifespans, right? And have really more generations. Generation. So, yeah. so maybe different invertebrates or maybe amphibians. But like for a lot of the mammals that we're working with and that we're caring for in zoos, I think there maybe probably hasn't been enough generations. And we try to do a really good job of making sure that we have genetic diversity. Mm-hmm. Wait till the 500 year I mean, yeah, anniversary maybe. of the Cincinnati Zoo. You yeah. guys are going to have some Everything's going to have big really ears and short noses and we'll really see. soft fur and be cute no matter what. No matter what it is, soft fur to alligators. <laughs> so, uh, so, David, you, you know, I, I imagine a little bit of the history of animal welfare, which is, uh, which has been a constantly evolving thing as the, you know, this is something that from zoos to animal research and everything, this is something that, mm-hmm. uh, we've made some mistakes along the way in human sure, history. Sure. And we've also learned a lot from those mistakes. And a lot of times, um, through history, people simply didn't know that animals were negatively affected in a certain way until they were. And it was, if that wouldn't have happened, maybe we wouldn't have known how to treat them as well as we do now today. But now we're in a place where your average, I imagine your average animal at a zoo is living like a spa life, (laughs) right? Like I kind of want to be a zoo animal. animal. There's some, definitely some benefits. There's, there's a balance there. We don't necessarily want every animal living in a spa, right? (laughs) That that might get boring after a while, but I certainly, you know, we are, you know, I think for, for us in zoos and aquariums, it's all about continuous improvement. So um, we always want to be doing better by our animals. And just over time, we're learning more. We're trying new things. We're bringing in other experts. We're learning from each other. Um, and that allows us to do better. So um, I like to think that animal this animal welfare science, it's not necessarily new. Like We've always been trying to take better care of our animals. Right now, we're trying to get a little bit more strategic, a little bit more evidence-based approach uh, to enhancing care. Um, we're trying to apply more data, uh, more best practices, and and really um, just take a holistic um, view of of what is this animal's experience right now and how do we make it better. It's it's at this point we're not necessarily trying to avoid bad welfare because hopefully in and especially in AZA accredited zoos and aquariums we don't have. I would like to think that we don't have any instances of bad welfare what, uh, we're what, moving really AZA moving from, a credit sure What's so that? uh it's the association of zoos and aquariums um it's an accrediting body basically it uh we're a member-driven organization of i don't know what it's would little, you say little over two it's like 225 zoos and aquariums in the u.s mm-hmm. it's so each um region has their own so europe has the european association of zoos and aquariums iaza um so each uh region has their own but if you go to an aza zoo you are attending and supporting an institution that has a very high bar for the quality of care for its animals, everywhere from where they get the food for them and how they feed them to their financial sustainability. Like you have an elephant that's going to live for 50 years. Can you pay for that elephant for 50 years? Um, <laughs> that's or even, the trouble. You have no idea how many right? elephants I've Ask yourself that all the time. Oh, no. over my head with yeah, elephants. That's right. Oh. And then... <laughs> 
and but, things like that they have to be kept in a social group, like all sorts of different standards. And AZA institutions also have to have top-notch education programs. They have to contribute to conservation. We hold each other to really high standards yeah. for everything that we do. So Cincinnati Zoom Town Garden has been a AZA member for a very long time. Um, and so, like you know, again, looking at AZA institutions, we're moving from good care to great care to mm-hmm. awesome care to excellent care. So it's really just trying to always be improving. And, and I think that's where we are right now and trying to integrate more science and uh, more strategy into our approach. Yeah. And to David's point, getting the science and the data for what people always right? Most people that work at zoos are animal people. Often when you think about zoos, zoos were created by animal lovers, right? Mm-hmm. But the definition in the Victorian era was collectors you were collecting live animals and then as we've evolved we've often had the same sort of person that maybe grew up on a farm or whatever and love and respect animals but the way they care for them is is a bit different than the way perhaps we care for them now um but all the long the goal was to have the animals be healthy mm-hmm. and reproducing and all the things that we want animals to do but now that we have the ability to collect more hard scientific data we can and evaluate hormone levels like cortisol we can say like is that zebra stressed out or not and is that acute stress which is good for a zebra like oh crap there's a lion stress or is this like it's been a drought for two years and i don't know how to find food stress right because mm-hmm. at the zoo to, to david's point we'd all get bored if we lived in a spa forever right i mean mm-hmm. it'd take me a while to get bored but at some point, you're like, I want something exciting to happen in well, life. Well, it's a spa with puzzles. Oh, and you know, yeah. some things, some challenges. <laughs> some challenges. Yeah. Yep. So that's where we're, we're able to hone in now more on that kind of stuff. Like, how do we provide them the most balanced life possible, including maybe even some like, I don't know, there's a new log in the yard. That's stressful because is it a lion? No, it's not a lion. All right, I'm cool. Um, but then I should right. go sniff that log and see if yeah. there's any bugs under that log or whatever. Not if yeah. you're a zebra, I guess, but if you're another maybe. animal. You need maybe. like a kind of like um, a, almost like a mini like roller coaster ride type. The, <laughs> yeah. Like the, uh, the, the, the parallel of like hum- humans need, yeah. n- need to like go out and and have these like very safe benign like little movie. stressors yeah, yeah yeah exactly just just to get those cortisol levels up in like a healthy yeah. short-term way rather than a, a long chronic yeah um bored or or chronically stressed kind of way correct and uh and so you're you're building in little things like that into their lives yeah and that's part of the um campaign i think i mentioned earlier is our it's our anniversary campaign but it's more home to roam with the idea of giving the animals more space but also more challenging environments that they can interact with and do more in mm. um just to make everything better to increase their behavioral repertoire and what they get to do and how they do it and who they do it with and all that kind of stuff you need like um like what's like a version of like paintball that you can do you put like foam (laughs) teeth or something on the lions and then they go and they like tackle the zebra or whatever (laughs) but it's okay because it was all fine everyone's fine (laughs) um well and it's funny because people ask us here our savannah exhibit our lions can see all of our hoofstock like our wildebeest and impala and gazelles they can see the lions they're across big water moats and ponds and stuff from each other but they can see each other full well and people are like oh my gosh isn't that scary to them it's like it isn't it isn't like those are their neighbors but every once in a while our impala will suddenly be like oh my god there's lions you guys (laughs) and the lions have been sitting in the same place for the last like three months but because they're lions and they only move like an hour a day um 
But yeah, so for our, our elephants, which I guess we could argue are our most uh, intelligent and challenging up, up there. Of the they're mo- up there. Uh, they're, yeah, they're among the of most. The, yeah, of the big of the big guys. Um, what elephants do all day long in the wild is they walk. And we have Asian elephants, so they walk, but not as much as African elephants. They walk, they eat, they have sex, they raise babies. Mm-hmm. That's what they do. And so... That's a lot of like life in general. That's that like, is true, right? That's, that's, that's pretty much what all of us are trying to do. I'm not trying do. to raise no babies. That's about <laughs> but, it. Yeah. Um, but so obviously we're not going to be able to give elephants the ability to do that the same way as they would in like Southeast Asia. But to your point, like we can give them puzzles and feeders that they trigger and they're like, why the heck won't the hay come out of this thing? And having to figure it out just like they'd have to figure out, does this tree have the fruit on it that I want to eat or not kind of a thing. Um, and that's what David and I have been working the most on recently, both in a little, little small microcosm lab of what we currently have, which is just a one acre, pretty small exhibit for our elephants, to what we're planning to build um, in the future. And then maybe we throw, I don't know, some lions in there with some rubber caps on their teeth and see yeah. what happens. Although they're Asian elephants. We'd have to throw a tiger in there. Yeah. And I don't want to mess with a tiger. So I'll mess with those lions all day long. What about like little uh, treadmill situations or something like that? Can it, is that, is that, is that a possibility? I did hear, I think at some point, didn't a zoo, didn't Alaska Zoo build like a treadmill for their for their Asian elephant? For elephants? I feel like Just there was like a, be a heavy like duty treadmill. Like Big hamster wheel? An elephant wheel? Oh, this Back is what you you an have elephant. an elephant wheel and then you put like little carriages that so like you can Ooh. actually ride oh. on the wheel that the ele- that is powered wow. by the elephant. Yeah. I mean, I like if that. you guys are looking for help That's around a, yeah. here, I'm sure I can A new way of sustainability for the Cincinnati Super Zoo. sustainability. I just pictured a giant elephant like hamster ball. So then the elephants oh, could just walk fun. all oh around the gosh. zoo. Could and and the, they could even go ball. out on water. Right? Yeah, uh, they could go anywhere. <laughs> new idea. An elephant ball. Let's talk to our director. Oh, Never mind man. our original I'm plan. S- I'm so happy I'm here, I'm so you glad guys. You're here too. Now we know. Now we now we've, You're we giving us be, a lot of ideas to work with. We can be with, beyond so. innovative now. Um yeah, well, and so our so for example, AZA Zoo accreditation, our accreditation inspections actually coming up in June. And one of the things they ask about is do you have an exercise program for your elephants? Mm-hmm. And that involves everything from like elephant yoga and stretching. I like to call it jazzercise, like, That's you know, awesome. a little a, little aerobic mix of stretching activity right keep them mentally healthy as well i mean that um, is to be, to be like well this isn't a for humans to be like well this isn't a natural environment for animals <laughs> like uh you're a human living in a building like right. doing yoga yeah. like sitting in front of a desk and doing all of these incredibly unnatural correct things. yeah i'm sorry do you live in a grass hut because i don't think you do we have to show that we do that and we do that through walking um, and stuff like that. And so for us, our elephants were part of a metabolic study. Um, oh, the Dr. Shuseed, who's initially who got your attention for the Cincinnati Zoo. Yeah. She did on um, elephants metabolism, how they burn fat and what it looks like. And they all were wearing like Fitbits, essentially. So our elephants wore Fitbits for a while to see how much they were walking in our current environment. And then... We just expanded our yard, so we're going to put them back on them. Although one of our elephants decided that her bracelet was made of molten lava. She and is hated not it. about it. She doesn't want it. <laughs> so we have to come up with a better reinforcer for her to show her that her bracelet's not going to kill her and she'll be okay. Um, to see how much they walk in our 
renovated exhibit. And then when we have our brand new exhibit, we'll be able to compare that information and just see how much walking they're doing. The- That's going to be real disappointing if you build this huge <laughs> right. new thing and then they're actually like walking less for some yeah. reason or another. Don't even don't even care one bit. And I that- mean, we're gonna we're we're gonna avoid that. Hopefully, <laughs> I mean, part of again building a larger habitat is also building in exploration opportunities. So there's gonna be a lot of new features in that new habitat and different feed stations throughout the whole area. So rather than you know. I guess back in the day, right? I'll just say that like food was made presented one or once or twice a day on the ground in a pile, right? It's pretty easy for animals to to acquire their food. Now we're trying to spread it out through space and time. Mm-hmm. That's how they would go about it in the wild. Elephants are spending a lot of their time walking and foraging in the wild. Let's try to promote that behavior here. Yeah. So if we can have, you know, on one side of, of the habitat, the food is going to drop it at two, or maybe the, the food is going to appear at four o'clock on the other side. And then, you know, uh, maybe a sprinkler system comes on over here and they can explore that or try to make it a dynamic space that's always changing, that they can have choices to move between different exciting opportunities. And um, and yeah, hopefully it's yeah, giving not- them a reason to go in the places. Right. So like I have a office that I never go into in my house because I don't want to work at home and there's nothing fun in there. Like there's nothing to do in there. So we just need to give them or like everyone's dining room, right? Nobody uses their dining room because there's nothing to do in there, but trying to give them reasons to go into all their spaces and use it the most. The Oregon zoo has Asian elephants and they built a brand new exhibit a couple years ago and found out that their elephants were walking more than wild elephants. And therefore they had to increase the amount of food they were giving them because they were losing too much weight from like being little mini marathon walkers, essentially. So we can definitely mm. do it. We can even outdo it a little bit, but um, it's just trying to find that balance. What about little like um, VR programs? Like you put little VR <laughs> visors <laughs> on the, the hippo or whatever. Yeah. I'm see. That they can, they can really feel like they're at home. Maybe Shotzi would be more into a headband than a bracelet. Maybe that's what she needs. She just wants to wear the wear the goggles so i was i i was thinking that a silly suggestion because i i had a somewhat serious uh question about how much technology has uh, has changed what new modern practices have happened in say the last decade or or two where i imagine a lot of it is is more um just in terms of like maybe ai and data data collection and that influence more than like Man, we we have like hippo birth forceps that we would have never <laughs> dreamed of uh, thirty years ago. It's probably more just a, a, of a data collection advances, or or are there are there new exciting tools happening, or or is it all? all of those things happening at once? I would say it's all those things. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, we definitely have uh, different data collection tools that have come into existence. Zoos and aquariums now use a beha- A lot of us use a behavior program called Zoo Monitor that allows it, us to is track. Is it data or is it data? I say oh, data. I, tomato, tomato. I don't know. I, don't know. I, say, <laughs> I wonder what it technically is. No, yeah. I think it depends. What would the Oxford no be? What did I just say? Is it data? I bet whatever I... You often I, say data, but I think you I just data? said data. I, say data. I bet whatever See? I say, it's the opposite. Opposite of that? Yeah. That's how I often feel. Mm. And I say data, so I bet it's data. 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 <laughs> well, I'll say data now. Da- but it is a plural. Is? That's something that I also that can never true. get right. It is true. So you refer to data as a plural, so give an example. 
Those data? Yeah, those data. Instead of the data. Okay. Which I mess up all the I time. It. I think a lot of people it do, but it, there is a technical <laughs> yeah, way, to, way to say that. Um, but yeah, so, I think there's advances yeah. so, all around in everything we're doing. Yeah. Like you were saying, Zoom Monitor's free. It's like free app now, right? So all of us have little computers on our hands, which makes everything in life easy. Mm-hmm. But then, I mean, I know you're joking about the hippo forceps, but like, for example... Um, Brookfield Zoo in Chicago was just able to build a CAT scan machine around a rhino in order to understand what was going on with an infection inside of her head. Like, that's nuts. Like, how is that even possible? I mean, those machines used to be a whole room or a whole building to be go through an MRI, right? And now they just carried a portable one to the zoo and built it around the rhino. Like, that's mm. insane. Well, and even here, we have uh, some folks, one of our animal care team members, Ricky Kinley, and then is working with uh, uh, Professor Katie Califoot. They have attached RFID, um, uh, RFID um, bands. bands. Yeah, sure, the on their wings penguin of wings. little penguins. And they're able to track how much time uh, each individual penguin is swimming every day. Um, and so that we can track that with uh, different health measures, what their behavior really, what they're doing, how they're spending their time. So, and it's all automated, right? We got RFID readers throughout the pool. We know when they're entering the pool, when they're exiting the pool. So they've done some really cool stuff there. So, I mean, I think RFID, we got now pedometers for a lot of animals. Um, and, I, you know, I think this technology, I mean, we're just going to find more and more ways to incorporate it into what we do. Hmm. What about, uh, I, I imagine you learn a lot from uh, the diet standpoint as well. Is there a lot of, is there like uh, supplements and stuff like that that you're adding in into diets? Because I, I imagine trying to yeah, the re- zoo- replicate what they're getting in the wild is, is uh, I imagine that it used to be the case that you just like throw in whatever to the animal mm-hmm. and, and with, without people probably weren't aware of how much, you know, diversity a, a certain species would have in their diet. Yeah. And, and that's probably come a long ways. Yeah. It's funny. So like, there's a whole, like, like with anything in the world, there's a whole industry that's just about feeding zoo animals. Really? But I feel like kind hmm. of how human society is kind of going full circle, right? Like in the seventies, everything was about like, you can microwave it or it's frozen dinners or all the like, cause that was like high tech to have the not homemade food. I feel like we're going in that way with zoos where for the animals that have very complex diets that we can't replicate, like a uh, tamandua or an anteater or something that eats insects, right? We can't give them all the insects that they possibly need. We give them some insects, but there's a company that makes insectivore diet that is a powder that replicates eating insects. Ah. But then, for example, go back to elephants. All of our big megafauna were just treated like giant cows, right? When they came in here, a a cow or a horse is Mm -hmm. like, feed them like one of those and hopefully they won't die. And most of them didn't. And so that's what they kept doing. Um, But then as we learn more about what they do in the wild, we make sure our elephants have what we call brows, which is just branches from trees, from edible trees, leaves and branches and the woody bits. Um, that they have every single day to eat alongside the hay and their grain that supplements them. So they get all the vitamins and minerals they need through a supplement, but we're kind of going back to basics. Like what do they eat in the wild trees? All right, let's try to give them trees. Um, so it's a little bit of both. And behaviorally that's important as well. Correct. Yeah. I, it, you know, there's a 
there's obviously a nutritional part of the diet, but there's also a behavioral part of the diet. I mean, yeah. to offer browse, they have to like, you know, break branches and pluck all the leaves off of the, and they maybe have to move, move those tree trunks around. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot of, it, I mean, it occupy a lot of time and, and yeah. challenge as well. Yeah. Again, rather than standing in the middle of a yard, eating a giant pile of hay. Right. Um, but no, it's crazy. There's like, I mean, we there's lemur biscuits, like literally just for lemurs. There's this little biscuit that's made only for lemurs. Like the specialization of the food that we have here available to our animals is nutty. It's nice. Mm. It's awesome. But it's its its whole own science and industry, zoo nutrition. Hmm. What about when animals find like their own little medicines and things in the in in the wild, is there anything like that that you replicate, or I imagine you have like a the uh, <laughs> like I know some some mammals like find their own like little drugs to get mm-hmm. high on instead. Do you ever like try to line up like an ayahuasca ceremony right for, for the colobus for, monkeys? For, yeah, for for your the panthers or whatever. Yeah. Those howler monkeys, this is a total tangent, but I um, studied howler monkeys in college and they're like the stoners of the trees, right? Because they eat toxic leaves that no other animals can eat. Right. So they're just up there eating these leaves, getting really stoned, hanging on their branches all day long. Well, that's what I'm wondering. Which is one of the more boring things to ever watch as a researcher. unethical then do you you have to make the choice do you like give the monkey the drug that it's used yeah. to having in the wild or if you're like no that's a bad monkey We're not supposed to- <laughs> you're on the straight and narrow mr howler um i think you know i think it just depends we try to replicate it the best as we can without being worried that we're going to kill them right so right. like giving them known toxic plants some zoos do that uh yeah. they walk that line and they're like, well, we know that too much of this will kill them, but they're made to process this. It just yeah. depends. But most zoos or all AZA zoos have um, zoo veterinarians that are on ground in a zoo in a veterinary hospital and all of that. So it's not as much fun as eating like stoner leaves. But if the howler needs pain relief, we can just give them good old hmm. aspirin. And they're trained to receive it, right? Like yeah. They're, they're used to taking medications or injections. and Yeah. Yeah. Like all the monkeys, a variety of the apes and monkeys are on like birth control, like the same birth control that really? any, any lady would take. And they take their pill every morning from their little oh. foil packet. That's, yeah, it's weird. Huh. Some stuff is very weird, like the crossover that you wouldn't even think about. That's interesting. Well, it, So primates are the thing that like, it, it, do you, how do you get the animal? Do you ever get the, I visited a, a place called Chimp Haven. Um, a, a few years ago, and they got they got primates or chimps from all sorts of uh, you know people would get a chimp like that'll yeah, be like a pet great trade pet to have, <laughs> yeah. and then and then you find out yeah. in a hurry like I had too many times with element <laughs> elephants that uh, that it's it's more admirable ha- you just kept trying with your elephants yeah I got it's like maybe it, yeah I'm, I'm more mature now <laughs> you know I'm more responsible I could be around. Um, but there, uh, first off, there is, you know, you get a, you get a primate, you realize, oh, this is a actual nightmare situation. Real talk here. And I know you probably can't answer this. One of these critters are, you're going to have to take one of these critters home with you for, for a pet. You're going to pick something in the zoo. What's it going to, you're shaking your head. No, Exotic you're not gonna, animals do not make you're, good pets. You're not True. going to answer this. <laughs> I'm saying this is like, 
it, you know, this is like a what do you rather kind of game. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you right. have to. Totally hypothetical. Totally yeah, hypothetical. Yeah, because exotic animals are terrible pets. Let's all make sure we heard that we clearly. All know that. that being yeah. said, <laughs> hmm, I would go for a Tamandua. Okay. It's just because we had a baby Tamandua recently. Because I love them more than well, life I, itself. I actually really don't know cute. what a So they're an arboreal anteater from oh. um, Central America. They're called a lesser anteater, but I don't like downing them like that that's like how we call ourselves great apes exactly who came up with that name yeah um yeah my favorite primate is a siming which is also called a lesser ape like get out of here come on tamandos smell really bad though um they have a real musky smell and they can destroy pretty much anything but huh someone told me they smell like popcorn no no those are binturongs oh binturongs oh which is right yeah we have a binturong but that's what i would do because if i were to actually radio audience get a tamandua through a pet trade i would probably have been responsible for the death of like a dozen tamanduas just to get that one yeah but in this alternate reality where i just get to choose whichever one i want that's what i want okay is that true no there's so many i'm just i'm it's hard there, i have so many options in my head right now if we're living in a totally <laughs> alternate universe where anything is possible and nothing will harm exotic wildlife. Yeah. Um, and you have to. Like, you're. Gun like to your everyone, head. Everyone's like. like it has to be. It's the apocalypse. The zoo's closed. <laughs> everyone needs to take to save one of the. Everyone needs to pare down with one. Your first choice. Um, I've been doing a lot of projects with birds lately. So I think I'm going to go with the rhinoceros hornbill. Oh, that's a good so one. They're so cool. They are cool. Okay. Yeah. They're smart. They have complex adaptations. They can fly. Um, they're beautiful. Yeah. They're loud. I would say I would take a painted dog, but it would rip my face off. So yeah, I don't sure. really want to do that. Yeah. It's unfortunate. So aside from <sighs> elephants, what about you? Man, I've always been <laughs> just like a monkey guy, you know? I'm yeah. such a sucker. I want one of the, what's the little ones that the... the like a pygmy loris? Pygmy loris, uh-huh. yeah. I want a little pygmy. I know the reality of it. Which is so is bad. Those not, ones especially. I know, but just The pet the, trade is decimating those yeah. populations I know, of small but primates. my Instagram would be blowing They're up. So oh, They're so cute. They are so um, cute. So, yeah. <laughs> I, Again, don't do that, don't everyone do at that. home. You All those monsters. cute videos are not actually cute, even though they yeah. are. Oh, I know. It's the like, other side like of I, the story. I, I just had my birthday, and I, I was at home visiting family, and my, and my, um, my mom like had my like childhood book of all these pictures and everything me until i was 18 and all that and i was like oh well the problem with this is i'm smiling in all of these photos and that is not a representation <laughs> right. of reality or what my childhood was yeah. like and that's like that with the the uh pygmy and uh, yeah the little lorises i'm trying to think of the one that i'm oh bush babies when they like show them like brushing their bellies and they like have their little hands out and look so cute it's like behind them's a row of like 500 in little shoebox cages or something like that Uh, all right david Uh, so that was (laughs) that was so super depressing right at the moment Uh, (laughs) but an important reminder yeah um so so david we need to let you go do you have anything do you want to say uh goodbye to the people yeah yeah i have a few more minutes at least i mean i think one thing that i know i did want to talk about a little bit more is our our more home to Rome campaign because i think one of the reasons that christina and i are talking together is that we've made a lot of uh really exciting changes i think within our for our elephants and um that 
that care team, our elephant care team is phenomenal and they've come up with a lot of different ideas and have been trying a lot of different things. But um, was it two years ago? Almost when I got here, mm-hmm. we really took a hard look at our at, um, our elephant habitat, our four elephants that we currently care for. We decided that we wanted to learn more about them. So we started, we joined up with a group of other AZA zoos um, in a program called Elephant Welfare Initiative. And so we're tracking the daily experience. AZA Zoo is fun to say, by the way. <laughs> it is. Yeah, yeah. We've got lots of fun acronyms. <laughs> we have so it's our many favorite acronyms. thing yeah. in this industry acronyms. Yeah. So Elephant Welfare Initiative, the acronym is EWI. E-W-I. Um, so it allows us to track the daily experience of our elephants, everything from um, their space experience to um, the feeding methods that that um, we're employing or the diversity of enrichment or how much time they're spending with inside outside choice. So we can look at all these things and then we're also, um, you know, basically collecting data on the now I'm now you say said it weird. data or data. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but we're also seeing what is our elephant, what are elephants telling us in return? So uh, what behaviors uh, are they showing us to, to kind of t- indicate to us what their welfare state is like or what their experiences are like? And from that, over the last two years, I mean, we've been uh, changing up a lot about how they're now more socially um, housed at night and they're going outside more. We just renovated um, our biggest habitat that we currently have, um, expanded it. It's got fresh substrate. Um, our uh, our male elephants can be able to go out there and mix with our female elephants. Um, we've seen changes in behavior over these few years. Um, we've been trying out different feeding strategies. We now got this really cool fake tree um, that has food that drops down and raises up with a remote control. So there you go with more technology, I guess. <laughs> um, food drops throughout the night in different parts of our building. It's like um, hide a hay, hide a flake of hay. Yeah, exactly. Which, where will there be? And they food have to today? move around and forage. I mean, we've got sand piles that they sleep in now, and you know, it's it's just really cool now that we're taking a harder look and learning more about our elephants. We're trying out new things, and I think seeing really positive changes. So we're looking forward to enhancing that tenfold with this new habitat as part of our more home to roam campaign. It's really the, the kind of, I guess, capstone project of it and Mm -hmm. of this campaign where it's going to be four to five acres, um, a brand new community center building, um, and a whole bunch of different exciting features in that habitat for elephants to explore. And hopefully more elephants yeah. and elephant babies. A multi-generational herd, which we know is important for, yeah. for elephants and um, really providing for a family group that can thrive here in Cincinnati. That's awesome. And so uh, this is perfect because each week on the podcast, I have my guest plug uh, um, uh charity or nonprofit or organization oh. of their choice and so the the home to Rome. so what can people do you know much about like if if people want to like go and donate or help out or learn more what they can do yeah feel free to that would be great feel free to uh visit our website cincinnatizoo.org uh, we have a link there for our more home to Rome campaign you can learn all about it we're also building new habitats um for a lot of different species yeah we're, we're ha- building for black rhino and kangaroo walkthrough p- expanded polar bear exhibit polar bear cubs little penguins Little penguins. Yeah, so um, many. And yeah, also enhancing our, our our sustainability efforts, conservation of resources, um, access for all people, our whole community. We're cha- doing a lot of really cool things here, I think, at the Cincinnati Zoo. So, um, yeah, I encourage anyone to go check us out. And then if you uh, feel like you'd like to, please contribute. We um, are looking forward to all these exciting things happening. Yeah, we were very excited about this campaign being community-driven. And, like, while we'll get big donations, hopefully, um, from people that have big pocketbooks, just the people in our community or around the country or world that love this zoo can give five bucks 
and be part of elephants or rhinos or whoever getting um, that much more space and experience to have a good old time and be themselves. Um, yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, I, so two things, one, because I want to talk about um, how zoos help conservation efforts um, for understanding more about how to better protect species that are in the wild and, and zoos influence on that, which I know is, um, and this is, uh, zoos are a great opportunity to learn more about how to um, make life more sustainable in the wild. And at the same time, I'm just so distracted right now because since my last question, ever since I've had this little movie playing in my head of me with a red panda, which I had never <laughs> considered before, but I was just kind of thinking about like watching TV on the couch with a, like red a red panda. panda I feel like it's like a pretty chill. It'd be pretty chill, yeah. Like I yeah. feel like that It'd would provide be some bamboo, and they're just gonna sit there and hang out. And yeah, eat. some bamboo, I some grapes, like some biscuits. Yeah. Don't scare like, them. Then they'll like teddy bear attack you with their little claws. You don't yeah. want that. But, but um, I feel a little more ethical about a red pan. I'm not Don't telling people that. Don't feel ethical about that, that either. I'm not telling <laughs> no. people that. Okay. It's just like I They think don't it make would good pets. Okay. Visit an accredited <laughs> zoo and aquarium. Okay, though. Right. They would be pretty chill, though. <laughs> they would be pretty chill. Okay. All right. So... It, so one of the one of the fantastic things about zoos is you get to see from from an animal researcher standpoint you get to see these things so close mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. and really get to monitor their behavior through a lifetime and every aspect of when they uh, you know when they become fertile when they give birth when they uh, and how how does that translate um to because I I know that's also something that scientists have to deal with is is you know it's a it can be different studying an animal in in the lab you, than yeah. than in the uh, in the wild. Mm-hmm. But what what are the many advantages to studying animals in a zoo? Yeah, there's all sorts. Do you need to go? Should we wait? I, I do think, you? Yeah, I think I got to right. You got to get out of Sorry here. About don't this. get we're in trouble. So much this fun. has been we don't, so yeah, fun. Thank you all. Great. Thank you for having me. And, yeah, uh, thank you. Yeah, I appreciate it. So, okay. all right. See you later. You got it from here, Christina. I got it. All right. Thank it. you all. I'm heading out. <laughs> yeah, awesome. All Thanks, right. David. Yeah, so what I think is super cool is that we now in zoos have been able to have a real relationship, like a real two-way street with our conservation wildlife partners um, out in the field and what we do here. So for example, let's talk about painted dogs now that David's gone. I don't have to talk about elephants anymore. No, I'm just kidding. Um, um, with our painted dogs, uh, painted dogs in the wild, there's less than 5,000 of them left mm. um, to give like scope on that. There's 20,000 lions left. Still not a lot, but there's almost no painted dogs left. Um, and one of the things that happens, they get snared a lot by people that aren't trying to kill painted dogs. They're just trying to find dinner, essentially. And they have wire snares and dogs get hooked on them. So there are collars that the researchers have used to track the dogs, like radio collars, that they started to make them snare-proof, anti-snare collars. Um, but they need, didn't know what size and the right fit and all these things. So we were able to use those on zoo painted dogs to trial them and then tell the researchers, hey, this is the right kind. And so now there's like, you know, I don't know, close to 500 
um, dogs in Zimbabwe that are protected because of something a zoo is able to do because they can't get that close to their animals. Um, and then, you know, back and forth, we, we know better ways to feed our okapi because of the research that they've been able to do in the wild and collecting fecal samples and knowing what their whole breadth of uh, food sources are and things like that. And then zoos, um, zoos and aquariums are the number one funding source for conservation work in the field. Like collectively AZA zoos last year gave over $200 million towards conservation. So coming to a zoo, people are often like, well, how is this actually going to help the giraffe in Africa, me coming to see giraffe in Cincinnati? But there's real impact. We gave $8,000 to a giraffe um, conservation project in uh, Tanzania last year. So just little bits here and there that there's real ways that it affects. And then obviously just by caring, right? One of our things here is to get people close enough to care. So whether it's your red panda sitting on your shoulder um, or actually seeing a giraffe up close when you're just feeding them a piece of lettuce. Um, I don't know. It's more meaningful, right? It like feels like a real thing versus like this idea of these big, tall, weird dinosaur animals walking around. Hmm. That's fantastic. That's what I think. Well, wonderful. I, this has been a terrific and you're doing, uh, th- you're doing stand-up science coming I am. up in a couple days. So that's I pretend to be a scientist. Cool. Um, and yeah, is there, is there anything else that we should make sure and cover before, um, any, any important things that you needed the listeners to know or anything like that? Nothing well, I can think of. This has been a terrific yeah. conversation. So thank you so You're much welcome. for having me. This has been such a fun day for me. And so thank you, Christina Gorsuch and Gorsuch. You got it. That yeah, was I it. That, that was that it. Time. All yeah. Right, terrific. And, uh, yeah. Thank you listeners for being such wonderful, curious people. And we'll talk with you next week. Make sure and check out the Cincinnati zoo and botanical garden. Anytime you are anywhere near this area, it's terrific. See ya. Next week on the Here We Are podcast, talking with Susan Vershack Shellhorn about cognitive mechanisms of life stress on depression. And lucky for you guys, super relevant because I happened to capture this episode while I was in the midst of a pretty dark depression. So it was uh, very relevant at the time. This is uh, in. At the tail end of last winter, we recorded this, and it is a really good, really interesting episode. Again, this is something where if you are taking the great courses, plus a course on biology and human behavior, the neurological origins of individuality, going to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash here we are, you're going to hear about stress and depression and its influence on uh, how you behave and everything else. And by the way, my partnership with Libro.fm, audiobook company, is still going strong. There's been more of you guys signing up, and I've been getting some positive feedback from you guys. Love audiobooks. This is between taking courses and having audiobooks and this podcast. You guys are 
some real active adult learners. Offer code here we are with the Libro.fm. And I mentioned that the Great Courses Plus program Biology and Human Behavior, the Neurological Origins of Individuality, is the best course I've ever taken. And I wish everyone in the world would take it. And my one book for a desert island would be, and this is going to be maybe a little too dense for some of you out there a little more detailed it's you know everyone uh has has the things that they really resonate with like right now i'm taking this great courses um plus class on on uh touring england scotland and wales because i have a trip to europe coming up i'm I'm, uh, going to cornwall england and uh festival outside budapest and doing this breaking convention conference in London at the end of August. And so I'm taking this course to figure out, uh, get a little history and and figure out some of the best places that I want to visit. And it's fantastic and really interesting. And the teacher's great. Um, You you know, uh, on all these levels, it's really compatible for me. And it's, but it's just not the kind of information that grabs me. Um, So, you know, there's individual differences. Maybe a couple of you out there uh, don't, aren't going to feel the same about a given topic that I do, but I really do believe that this biology and human behavior course is just such a mind-blowingly good um, class. So, yeah, I have Oh, oh! Behave is the book. Behave by Robert Sapolsky. That's my my desert island book that you should check out on Libro.fm offer code. Here we are. I'm just so happy to have these partnerships. I'm trying to, you know, eventually eliminate some of the other ads going on. Discriminate more with some of the other ads. Get rid of some of the mid-roll stuff that interrupts the podcast this is you know for uh the first years of the podcast this this podcast was my baby and it was something that i was doing on the side of my stand-up and i didn't want to sell ads on it i didn't want to sacrifice my integrity or whatever and as i started doing more and more transitioning into becoming a science communicator and that becoming my main focus and stand-up science or or stand-up science and things like that becoming my main focus and regular stand-up fading into the background a little bit more. I've just needed to get more income from my science communication, started selling ads on this show and, and, you know, you don't necessarily get to be that selective early on. And I guess I always viewed ads as kind of being this zero sum game a little bit where you're sacrificing some of your, your good name and your integrity to peddle a bunch of stuff people don't need. And or there's some cost involved. Like I love my partnership with Stitcher. I think Stitcher is a fantastic company. It's so cool that you can have the Stitcher Premium and get all uh, all the podcasts ad free without those mid roll ads. But you know the catch is it's the only place available, which is great if you're a Stitcher Premium person. 
Um, but my other listeners don't get any episodes older than six months old. And so there's always some trade-off with all these arrangements, except with Libro.fm, with the Myco Meditation Psilocybin Retreat, and with the Great Courses Plus. These are all just something that is... I realized I can kind of create this network of partnerships where we're all helping each other and that's how I want to that that's where I want to put more of my focus into these kinds of partnerships so I hope that you will help me in supporting these ventures and in return I am putting out a fifth a bonus podcast each month for I'm going to do it for at least a year I have enough banked up so even if even if something happens short of something absolutely horrifically tragic happening that means the end of this podcast as long as this podcast still exists a year from now uh there will be a bonus episode each week and who knows with the way that i've been going with with uh being able to line up all these guests for stand-up science and everything else i might be doing six here we are podcasts in the future if i continue getting you know i tried to do the patreon thing of making all this special content for patreon i'm still hoping to do more of that but the main use of the of the patreon contribution is going to be geared toward just making more here we are podcasts for everybody i i love doing this i think this is my major contribution to making the world a more informed curious place to be in and so that's where i'm putting my effort so i appreciate that and in terms of stand-up science I'm experimenting. Summer can be really, really tough. Not can be, is really, really tough in terms of most entertainment, but especially comedy. People are taking family trips or people are going to, you know, they're outside in the nice weather barbecuing and all of that. And it's hard to get people to do something indoors and people are doing family time and everything else and so summer can be a a really hard time for people to for us to get people out so i would appreciate all the support as i experiment with and who knows if it doesn't work out i just won't do shows in the summer um in coming years Uh, but for now i think that there is uh I, i think that this is a really cool different alternative kind of entertainment for people with stand-up science two scientists and two comedians on each show i have cedar falls iowa des moines iowa wichita norman oklahoma outside of oklahoma city kansas city missouri omaha and minneapolis all coming up in the coming weeks so please go to shane moss dot com to check that out i have some regular show dates on there including my european tour as well um and so check that out i also things i haven't mentioned like bumbershoot festival in seattle is going to be a really great time the red clay comedy festival in october is going to be a terrific time so check all of those out and um, I know I'm forgetting a few things, but I'm just so excited to be sharing with you the Great Courses Plus and the Libro.fm, and we have the details for the Myco Meditation uh, Retreat up 
I believe, by the time you're hearing, hearing this on the Myco Meditation site as well, and that's already about half full, haven't even started putting it officially online. So make sure and get signed up for that for next January. Have a really unique, incredible experience with me. I'll be there. I'll be guiding you guys through. I'll be hanging out with you. And um, it's a really special experience. So check all that out. Those of you that listen all the way to the end, you are, of course, my favorites.
Music this week by Sam Goodwill. Stop it, stop it. A, podca- <clears throat> A podcast network.